Solander's Radio Tune by Ellis Parker Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dessa D. Solander's Radio Tune by Ellis Parker Butler. I first met Mr. Remington Solander shortly after I installed my first radio set. I was going into New York on the 8.15 a.m. train and was sitting with my friend Murchison and, as a matter of course, we were talking radio. I just told Murchison that he was a lunk-headed noodle and that for two cents I would poke him in the jaw and that even a pin-headed idiot ought to know that a tube set was better than a crystal set. To this, Murchison had replied that that settled in. He said he had always known I was a moron and now he was sure of it. If you had enough brains to fill a hazelnut shell, he said, you wouldn't talk that way. Anybody but a half-baked lunatic would know that what a man wants in radio is clear, sharp reception, and that's what a crystal gives you. You're one of those half-wits that think they're classy if they can hear some two-cent station 500 miles away utter a few faint squeaks. Shut up. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to listen to you. Go and sit somewhere else. Of course, this was what was to be expected of Murchison, and if I did let out a few laps of anger, I feel I was entirely justified. Radio fans are always disputing over the relative merits of crystal and tube sets, but I knew I was right. I was just trying to decide whether to choke Murchison with my bare hand and throw his lifeless body out of the car window, or tell him a few things I had been wanting to say ever since he began knocking my tube set when this Remington Solander, who was sitting behind us, leaned forward and tapped me on the shoulder. I quickly turned and saw his long, sheep-like face close to mine. He was chewing cardamom seed and breathing the odor into my face. My friend, he said, come back and sit with me. I want to ask you a few questions about radio. Well, I couldn't resist that, could I? No radio fan could. I did not care much for the looks of this Remington Solander man, but for a few weeks my friends had seemed to be steering away from me when I drew near, although I am sure I never said anything to bore them. All I ever talked about was my radio set and some new hookups I was trying, but I had noticed that men who formerly had seemed to be fond of my company now gave startled looks when I neared them. Some even climbed over the nearest fence and ran madly across vacant lots, looking over their shoulders with frightened glances as they ran. For a week I had not been able to get any man of my acquaintance to listen to one word from me except Murchison, and he is an utter idiot, as I think I have made clear. So I left Murchison and sat with Remington Solander. In one way, I was proud to be invited to sit with Remington Solander because he was far and away the richest man in our town. When he died, his estate proved to amount to $3 million. I had seen him often, and I knew who he was, but he was a standoffish old fellow and did not mix, so I had never met him. He was a tall man and thin, somewhat flabby, and he was pale in an unhealthy sort of way. But, after all, he was a millionaire and a member of one of the old families of Westcote so I took the seat alongside of him with considerable satisfaction. I gather, he said as soon as I was seated, that you are interested in radio. I told him I was. And I'm just building a new set using a new hookup that I heard of a week ago, I said. I think it is going to be a wonder. Now here's the idea. Instead of using a grid, yes, yes, the old aristocrat said hastily, but never mind that now. I know very little of such things. I have an electrician employed by the year to care for my radio set, and I leave all such things to him. You are a lawyer, are you not? I told him I was. And you are a chairman of the trustees of the Westcote Cemetery, are you not? He asked. I told him I was that also, 
And I may say that the West Coast Cemetery Association is one of the rightest and tightest little corporations in existence. It has been in existence since 1808 and has been exceedingly profitable to those fortunate enough to hold its stock. I inherited the small block I owned from my grandfather. Recently, we trustees had bought 60 additional acres adjoining the old cemetery and had added them to it, and we were about ready to put the new lots on the market. At $300 apiece, there promised to be a tremendous profit in the thing, for our cemetery was a fashionable place to be buried in, and the demand for the lots in the new addition promised to be enormous. You have not known it, said Remington Solander in his slow drawl, which had the effect of letting his words slide out of his mouth and drip down his long chin like cold molasses. But I have been making inquiries about you, and I have been meaning to speak to you. I am drawing up a new last will and testament, and I want you to draw up one of the clauses for me without delay. Why, certainly, Mr. Solander, I said with increased pride. I'll be glad to be of service to you. I am choosing you for the work, Remington Solander said, because you know and love radio as I do, and because you are a trustee of the Cemetery Association. Are you a religious man? Well, I said a little uneasily, some, some, but not much. No matter, said Mr. Slander, placing a hand on my arm. I am. I have always been. From my earliest youth, my mind has been on serious things. As a matter of fact, sir, I have compiled a manuscript collection of religious quotations, hymns, sermons, and uplifting thoughts, which now fill 14 volumes, all in my own handwriting. Fortunately, I inherited money, and this collection is my gift to the world. And a noble one, I'm sure, I said. Most noble, said Mr. Slander. But, sir, I have not confined my activities to the study chair. I have kept my eye on the progress of the world, and it seems to me that radio, this new and wonderful invention, is the greatest discovery of all ages and imperishable. But, sir, it is being twisted to cheap uses. Jazz, cheap songs, worldly words and music. That I mean to remedy. Well, I said, it might be done. Of course, people like what they like. Some nobler souls like better things, said Remington Slander solemnly. Some more worthy men and women will welcome nobler radio broadcasting. In my will, I am putting aside one million dollars to establish and maintain a broadcasting station that will broadcast only my 14 volumes of hymns and uplifting material. Every day this matter will go forth, sermons, lectures on prohibition, noble thoughts, and religious poems. I assured him that some people might be glad to get that, that a lot of people might, in fact, and that I could write that into his will without any trouble at all. Ah, said Remington Solander, but that is already in my will. What I want you to write for my will is another clause. I mean to build, in your cemetery, a high-class and imperishable granite tomb for myself. I mean to place it on that knoll, that high knoll, the highest spot in your cemetery. What I want you to write into my will is a clause providing for the perpetual care and maintenance of my tomb. I want to set aside $500,000 for that purpose. Well, I said to the sheep-faced millionaire, I can do that too. Yes, he agreed. And I want to give my family and relations the remaining million and a half dollars provided, he said, accenting the provided, they carry out faithfully the provisions of the clause providing for the perpetual care and maintenance of my tomb. If they don't care and maintain... He said, giving me a hard look. That million and a half is to go to the home for flea-bitten dogs. They'll care and maintain, all right, I laughed. I think so, said Remington Slander gravely. I do think so, indeed. And now, sir, we come to the important part. 
You, as I know, are a trustee of the cemetery. Yes, I said, I am. For drawing this clause of my will, if you can draw it, said Remington Slander, looking me full in the eye with both his own, which were like the eyes of a salt mackerel, I shall pay you $5,000. Well, I almost gasped. It was a big lot of money for drawing one clause of a will, and I began to smell a rat right there. But I may say, the proposition Remington Slander made to me was one I was able, after quite a little talk with my fellow trustees of the cemetery, to carry out. What Remington Slander wanted was to be permitted to put a radio-loud-speaking outfit in his granite tomb. A radio-loud-speaking outfit permanently set at 327 meters wavelength, which was to be the wavelength of his endowed broadcasting station. I don't know how Remington Slander first got his remarkable idea, but just about that time, an undertaker in New York had rigged up a hearse with a phonograph so that the hearse would loudspeak suitable hymns on the way to the cemetery, and that may have suggested the loudspeaking tomb to Remington Slander. But it is not important where he got the idea. He had it, and he was set on having it carried out. Think, he said, of the uplifting effect of it. On the highest spot in the cemetery will stand my noble tomb, loudspeaking in all directions the solemn and holy words and music I have collected in my fourteen volumes. All who enter the cemetery will hear. All will be ennobled and uplifted. That was so, too. I saw that at once. I said so. So Remington Solander went on to explain that the income from the $500,000 would be set aside to keep A batteries and B batteries supplied, to keep the outfit in repair, and so on. So I tackled the job rather enthusiastically. I don't say that the $5,000 fee did not interest me, but I did think Remington Solander had a grand idea. It would make our cemetery stand out. People would come from everywhere to see and listen. The lots in the new edition would sell like hotcakes. But I did have a little trouble with the other trustees. They balked when I explained that Remington Solander wanted the sole radio loudspeaking rights of our cemetery. But someone finally suggested that if Remington Slander put up a new and artistic iron fence around the whole cemetery, it might be all right. They made him submit his 14 volumes so they could see what sort of matter he meant to broadcast from his high-class station, and they agreed it was solemn enough. It was all solemn and sad and gloomy, just the stuff for a cemetery. So when Remington Slander agreed to build the new iron fence, they made a formal contract with him, and I drew up the clause for the will and he bought six slots on top of the high knoll and began erecting his marble mausoleum. For eight months or so, Remington Salander was busier than he had ever been in his life. He superintended the building of the tomb, and he had on hand the job of getting his endowed radio station going. It was given the letters WZZZ, and hiring artists to sing and play and speechify his 14 volumes of gloom and uplift at 327 meters, and it was too much for the old culture. The very night the test of the WZZZ outfit was made, he passed away and was no more on earth. His funeral was one of the biggest we ever had in Westcote. I should judge that 5,000 people attended his remains to the cemetery, for it had become widely known that the first WZZZ program would be received and loudspoken from Remington Salander's tomb that afternoon, the first selection on the program, his favorite hymn, beginning as the funeral cortege left the building and the program continuing until dark. I'll say it was one of the most affecting occasions I have ever witnessed. As the body was being carried into the tomb, the loudspeaker gave us a sermon by Reverend Peter L. Rugus, full of snob stuff, and every one of the 5,000 present wept. And when the funeral was really finished, over 2,000 remained to hear the rest of the program, 
which consisted of hymns, missionary reports, static, and recitations of religious poems. We increased the price of the lots in the new edition, $100 per lot immediately, and we sold four lots that afternoon and two the next morning. The big metropolitan newspapers all gave the West Coast Cemetery full-page illustrated articles the next Sunday, and we received during the next week over 300 letters, mostly from ministers, praising what we had done. But that was not the best of it. Requests for lots began to come in by mail. Not only people in West Coast wrote for prices, but people away over in New Jersey and up in Westchester country, and even from as far away as Poughkeepsie and Delaware. We had twice as many requests for lots as there were lots to sell, and we decided we would have an auction and let them go to the highest bidders. You see, Remington Slander's talking tomb was becoming nationally famous. We began to negotiate with the owners of six farms adjacent to our cemetery. We figured on buying them and making more new additions to the cemetery. And then we found we could not use three of the farms. The reason was that the loudspeaker in Remington Slander's tomb would not carry that far. It was not strong enough. So we went to the executors of his estate and ran up against another snag. Nothing in the radio outfit in the tomb could be altered in any way whatever. That was in the will. The same loudspeaker had to be maintained, the same wavelength had to be kept, the same mix of batteries had to be used, the same style of tubes had to be used. Remington Slander had thought of all that, so we decided to let well enough alone. It was all we could do anyway. We bought the farms that were reached by the loudspeaker and had them surveyed and laid out in lots, and then the thing happened. Yes, sir, I'll sell my cemetery stock for two cents on the dollar, if anybody will bid that much for it. For what do you think happened? Along came the government of the United States regulating this radio thing and assigned new wavelengths to all the broadcasting stations. It gave Remington Slander's endowed broadcasting station, WZZZ, an 855-meter wavelength, and it gave that station at Dodwood, station PKX, their 327-meter wavelength. And the next day, poor old Remington Slander's tomb poured forth, yes, we ain't got no bananas, and the hot dog jazz, and if you don't see mama every night, you can't see mama at all, and Hank's hubs and his funny stories, like, well, one day an Irishman and a Swede were walking down Broadway, and they see a flapper coming towards them, and she had on one of them short skirts they was wearing, see? So Mike, he says, gee jabbers, oh, I see a peach. So the Swede, he says, looking at the silk stockings, maybe you been see a peach, Mike, but I been see one mighty nice pair. Well, the other day, I went to see my mother-in-law. You know the sort of program. I don't say that the people who like them are not entitled to them, but I do say they are not the sort of programs to loudspeak from a tomb in a cemetery. I expect old Remington Solander turns clear over in his tomb when those programs begin to come through. I know our board of trustees went right up in the air, but there was not a thing we could do about it. The newspapers gave us double pages the next Sunday, Remington Solander's Jazz Tomb, and West Coast's Two-Step Cemetery. And within a week, the inmates of our cemetery began to move out. Friends of people who had been buried over a hundred years came and moved them to other cemeteries and took the headstones and monuments with them, and in a month, our cemetery looked like one of those great war battlefields, like a lot of shell holes. Not a man, woman, or child was left in the place, except Remington Cylinder in his granite tomb on top of the high knoll. What we've got on our hands is a deserted cemetery. They all blame me, but I can't do anything about it. All I can do is groan. Every morning I grab the paper and look for the PKX program and then I groan. Remington Solander is the lucky man. He's dead. End of Solander's Radio Tomb by Alice Parker Butler